way that I explain it to couples is it's like planting and growing a garden. At the start of a relationship, you put all this energy into planting. But if you were to then do that in your garden, go and plant everything and then just check in on the garden from time to time and say to the garden, I really love you. You mean the world to me. You're everything to me. But you never actually took the time to water it and to weed it and to keep planting. Then the garden isn't going to grow. And so the relationship is the same. All of that energy at the start is great, but you have to really keep showing up and putting in that effort in the relationship and realizing that every good relationship takes that kind of effort. No great relationship just happens. Welcome to the dignity of suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 19. Today we go all the way to Australia to find and speak to this incredibly dynamic therapist, Asaya McKimmy, who is a sexologist, couples therapist, sex therapist, and coach. And if you want to find out what a sexologist is, you're going to have to wait for the interview. <laughs> I reached out to Asaya because so much of what I do with individuals and couples and in my own life has to do with how our bodies, over time, let others in. And when it comes to intimate relationships, there is no hiding in sex. It often reveals our pain, our vulnerability. And as we get close, this is a place that couples often have to work at to get even closer. So after spending a week writing about and talking about the body and why in certain cases when language fails us, Sex can often be a place where people find refuge, but also where people start to get very confused when it creates an imbalance or it creates a lot of friction in relationships. And people can often feel unseen, exposed, vulnerable. And Asaya just brings this incredible lightness of being to the conversation. I was so impressed with, with the joy and positivity and just lightness that she kept coming back with as we explored this in relationships. So I'm going to let her speak for herself. It's been an incredible pleasure over the past while to interact with so many of you on Instagram. If, if you'd like to reach out to me and talk about the podcast, that's a really good place to come. I'm at I am Mitchell Smolkin. And of course, please rate and review the podcast and share this with people if you think it will help them. So without further ado, here's my interview with sexologist Saya McKimmy. 
So it is a huge pleasure uh, to have you here, Asaya McKimmy, all the way from Australia in my office in Stockholm, virtually, of course. I am recent to social media because I launched a podcast early this year. I've been working with couples uh, forever and just found I wanted another venue to start to reach people. And then I started interacting with folks on Instagram and there you were kicking up a storm, teaching folks around the world how to have better sex and better relationships. And this week, I focused on something that I've seen couples do in my office so many times, which is get closer and become more vulnerable. And so I wrote a lot about what that takes. And I was like, I need to talk to you and have you on my show. And you so graciously said yes. So thank you for being here. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, I, I want to know about your name, actually. Where's your first name from? I think you're the first Asaya that I've met. Yeah, it's a really good question. Asaya means God made in Hebrew. And actually, it was a name that came to me during meditation about 15 years ago. And after this name coming to me in meditation for weeks at a time, I reluctantly realized that it was my name and it has been my official name, my legal name ever since. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, I've often in my life had this feeling like, there's another name out there for me. I've told very few people that. Sometimes as I got older, I turned from Mitch to Mitchell, which felt better. But that resonates a lot that there would be a name out there that would come to you. So if Asaya comes to me, can I also use that or do I need to choose another one? Is it- oh, yeah, no, go ahead. I feel like I didn't create it. What got you into working with couples? And I should say you're a couples therapist and a sexologist, and we can talk a bit more about what that means, but what got you into doing this work with couples? It is a very surprising career for me. I came from a small country town in Australia. I grew up in a family, like I'm I'm sure many people, where sex wasn't a conversation that was had. We didn't talk about sex in my house. The only times I ever really heard sex talked about was once My mom read, you know, that book that I think all children of the 80s and 90s know, which is Where Did I Come From, the cartoons. And she just seemed so uncomfortable the whole time. And and I also remember once overhearing her talking with her friends about how they were all trying to avoid sex. So that was my early introduction to sexual and intimate relationships. And I also had felt incredibly uncomfortable with my body growing up. Uh, I have a skin condition that leaves that has left white marks on my skin. I never wanted anyone to see me naked. So I was pretty shy. I didn't like my body. I'd never heard sex talked about. It's not a great setup for really empowering relationships as a young adult. I was lucky enough that I went to a, a music festival one day and stumbled into a Tantra workshop. And for anyone who hasn't heard of Tantra, it's a very ancient Indian philosophy and spiritual teaching, best known in the West because Sting practices Tantra and he can have sex for nine hours. It's the kind of westernized neo-Tantra that has great benefits to our sex life. And that really changed the relationship that I had with my body. It changed the shame. It took away the shame that I had felt around sex and gave me really practical tools for actually being able to enjoy being intimate with someone. 
And so that sparked a, a whole journey for me where I ended up teaching Tantra and still never thinking it would be a career. But at some point I realized helping people with their sex lives, helping them feel more confident and comfortable was an amazing way to change their lives. And that's what I wanted to do. So I then went on to do uh, a whole lot more training to make that possible. And part of that, I very quickly realized that I couldn't just deal with sex. I had to deal with relationships as well because they are so intrinsically connected. And and so after becoming a, I I became a therapist, I I became a sexologist, I became a couples therapist. And and now I actually um, lecture other counsellors in working with couples as well as seeing couples myself. So it has been a long journey, but one that I'm so grateful for. It is such an enormous privilege to help people with this part of our lives that we so rarely get to talk about or get good education around. That was helpful. I didn't know where that nine-hour sex guarantee for couples came from on your website, but I was a little (laughs) bit surprised. But now I know it's Sting. So if you go to Isia's website, you can sign up. It's a six-month guarantee. Yeah, he's joking, by the way. (laughs) You get a flood of emails. Yes, we're coming. We're flying to Australia. In all seriousness, I genuinely was excited to talk because I went from the other way. I didn't start with looking at physical intimacy and sex. I was thrown couples in my internship. I had always wanted to be a psychoanalyst, psychologist, and then they're like, see couples. And I was like, you don't really know what you're doing, do you? Like in, in the clinic. And so I I did my own research. And so I've always been very curious about people that have you uh, really taken the time to look at physical intimacy and it's the components of that. Why do you think it's so important in relationships? Like when you take a broad view, because it comes up often as a hot button issue for people. And why do you think that is? Yeah, it does. And I also often get the question, is sex really that important in a relationship? And I think that is is such a, a good question. For me, it isn't how much sex you're having in the relationship. It's how satisfied you are by that, by the frequency, by the way that your partner engages with your desire your level of shame or not around it. So your level of comfort in engaging with it. If two people have really low, a really low desire for sex and when they want sex never or once a year, great. But if one person has a higher desire and one person has a lower desire, sex, it can be so caught up in our experiences of shame that often runs really deep with our identity And often for men, and I really like Brene Brown's research around this, for men, it can be quite connected to self-worth as well. And as you said, it's a hot button issue. There can be so much emotion around it. So for me, being able to help couples navigate that well together can make such an enormous difference for their relationship. And I think when sex is going well, it can actually bring a couple closer when there are challenges around it. You know, if a couple can't manage it well, it can be a wedge that draws them apart. But even if there are challenges and they can navigate it together, there's enormous intimacy that can come from that. Yeah, it makes perfect sense what you're saying and all the different variables of whether two people are aligned. And then, of course, on so many issues, whether it's sex or children or where to live, if there are huge gaps, 
it can be really scary, right? It can be scary for two people who are in love and want to be together. And then you have what seem like really binary issues that are not only hard to solve, but just, I think, bring up a lot of understandable fear. And I guess I, what was running through my mind is that we often, those of us that write about this and teach it, and I feel like sometimes when we're having conversations and you've seen me get a little bit and you were so great, but like on Instagram, sometimes I'm a little bit like, okay, like I get this piece of advice. This might seem a little bit reductive to somebody with trauma or somebody who, you know, because there's so much, I think, especially in younger generations, there's a lot, there's a lot that's written about like authenticity and feeling seen. And maybe I'm just an old fart, but we're married for 20 years. And I'm like, yes, but when you're with somebody over the long term, there are so many revolutions and so much that comes out and little changes and big changes and failures and times where you feel disconnected. And it's, we can't paint intimacy as a kind of, I feel great and I feel connected. And that's the only relationship I want. And I get it. I get it that there's different stages for people. But I guess this leads me to the sort of question or just to talk to you about what you see as a clinician, which is that my sense when it comes to, for instance, to use your example of a man who comes in who feels intrinsically tied to physical intimacy with their self-worth. For me, my experience is that's a slow process like that. Like you may have a session, the person may not for three sessions even acknowledge that and may talk about politics or why they think they're not compatible. And then session four or eight, finally, like, you know what, like tears come. And so I'm just, I, I, I don't know what I'm asking, except has that been your experience or what is it like to sort of watch somebody go through the process of having the courage to acknowledge that really when they were asking for sex and getting angry about it, it was because they were feeling small inside. And I feel like it takes time for that language even to be given birth to. It does. And I love you've put that so beautifully because that is so often what I see amongst couples that one person feeling like they're being rejected sexually is essentially feeling like they're not loved, they're not cared about, they're being abandoned in some way and seeing that that shame and that lack of worth coming up. I think one of the things that that I offer as a practitioner is I'm a couples therapist and a sexologist. People know that when they come to see me. So there is already that implied permission that we can talk about sex such a crucial starting point within a relationship and with a therapist that you're seeing because we can see sex as something private, something that we should just sort out ourselves or even something that we shouldn't even have to talk about. So starting that conversation about it, knowing that it's okay, knowing that everyone has to talk about sex if they want to do it well is a first step. And so I feel really privileged to be in the position where I hold that in my space. And and I actually, in my kind of framework, in the way that I work with couples, the way that I work, and this is what I explain to people when I start working with them, we're going to work on connection first, just solidifying that friendship and the admiration and the love and the time they're spending together. Then we'll look at communication because one inherently impacts the other. So how they're able then to talk about difficult things And then the third piece, which I talk about is what sits on that foundation of connection and communication is their sexual intimacy. But I always make sure that we've solidified that connection and given them tools for communication so that they can navigate 
those difficulties in that emotion of sexual intimacy, they're not just expected to be open about it or to be able to fix it right away, that we actually really need to look at the foundations first. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with safety to be able, like my metaphor is always, not always, but going into like a swimming pool and you have to start out with dipping your toes in the water. Understandably, with so many issues in our relationships, there's a lot of hunger and couples will come in often exhausted and really want to be swimming in the deep end. And I always find that it's very gratifying because I think couples can feel held when, like you're saying, you frame it for them. And you're like, look, we have to get you a bit closer first before you're going to have a feeling of safety to go into this. Otherwise, I'm just going to hurt you more. Like you're just going to leave feeling more overwhelmed. And that's not why you came to see me. But that's hard, right? It's hard. I I always say it's like fine dining versus a buffet. When you're hungry, buffets always look very appealing. After half an hour, you're like, why did we come here? (laughs) Exactly right. Because I think there can be that feeling of our sex life should be different. And I should be able to do this. And if I just throw myself in at the deep end, then I'll swim. But it's not sustainable. And so being able to build that slowly is is what I always say to, to couples we're going for. We want to build a sustainably enjoyable sex life because if you jump in at the deep end, it isn't going to be sustainable. And then you can kind of regret having done that. And I wrote about This week, I think when it comes to mental health, so much of what I think a lot of us deal with or see is the sort of yin and yang, the huge drop from grace. So we can talk about that in a second. But the fall from these kind of sex, I think, elicits a kind of sense of perfection. In philosophy, there's this notion, of course, and I don't know as much about Tantra as you do, but there's something about being in that place that transcends time and physicality. And I think there's a real challenge for all of us to go in and out of the sacred and the profane in our lives. And that handling that disappointment, I think, is is a lifelong journey. I fail to ask because not many people may know, it may seem obvious from the name, but a sexologist, is there a particular definition for that? Is that a particular profession in, in Australia? Can you help me a bit? Yeah, really, really good question. I, you know, I often get asked, so a sexologist is, is that a real, is that a real thing? What does that even mean? So (laughs) sexology is the study of sex. So uh, someone who is a sexologist has studied sex at a postgraduate academic level. So I'm a sexologist, but I'm also a sex therapist. You can be a a general sexologist and you can work in a number of fields as a sexologist. My, I am both a sexologist and I have done clinical training in sex therapy. So how that, that applies to working with couples directly. I tend to use the term sexologist because I think it sounds a bit less kind of serious and heavy, a little bit more sexy than, oh, a sex therapist. And, and I think that therapy shouldn't feel like this heavy, scary thing. Yeah, I wrote, I'm seeing a friend later today and I we were just texting before we got on the interview and I said, I'm usually prone, as you've noticed, to making very dry jokes. And I was like, I'm just heading into an interview with a sexologist. I'll call you later. And then I was like, in brackets, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I didn't want to presume that this is what you see in couples, but if you do see this, I would love, because I think this is something that so many relationships struggle with and to be frank, I think that it breaks a lot of relationships, which is the, you know, cliched honeymoon phase when very often, not always, but very often there is a flow and, and an intensity and 
a sense of union. And I have my own opinions about why that falls. I think it's going to fall for most couples. I think for all couples, frankly, because we change, we have kids, all this stuff. But I'm just curious, number one, if you see that. And number two, how you help couples transcend that loss and moving into a more everyday relationship that features moments of great passion that may not be defined by it. Oh, it's such a good question because I'm sure that so many people listening can relate to that. Our relationship isn't what it used to be. What has gone wrong? What is wrong with my relationship or what is wrong with me that this is happening in my relationship? For me, there's a couple of components of this and and this really comes out out of a lot of research now that's been done on relationships. When we're in that honeymoon period, all those hormones and endorphins have us be, you know, in many ways addicted to the other person there. And we want to go out of our way for the other person. We do things for them. We're generous with them. When we get into that more mundane flow of life where we've got things to do and responsibilities to juggle, we stop doing those things. We stop doing the things that made a difference at the start. So we don't set aside time to spend together. We lose the fun and playfulness. And for me, that's such a crucial element. And I know a lot of therapists and researchers talk about that as well, that fun and playfulness, which is really like the start of that eroticism and that desire, it goes missing and that couples just don't respond to each other's needs in the same way. So they can end up disconnected and disengaged from each other rather than having that connection that stays really alive, even though it might have changed its form. Yeah, for sure. One of the, I think the biggest hurdles that I find is that couples will come in feeling very hurt. And there's this idea that it's not organic anymore. Or I've heard people say, if I have to try to make it fun, that's not fun anymore. And again, I'd love to hear how you help couples wrap their heads around that next phase or next phases in the relationship of learning about each other. And I don't know, I see that sometimes as a real roadblock where it's, yeah, we had this, but now I don't trust this person or I don't, they're just doing this to please you, the therapist and say these things. And I'm curious at what you've learned or how you help couples. I don't think regain, because it's not just regaining, it's moving to another level of connection. And that's, I think, a bit of a mental trick. But for me, it's always important. Yeah, you might have some of those feelings again, but they'll be situated in a very different and new context. Yeah, I agree. It's about moving forward to a different kind of relationship rather than going back to where you were at the start. The way that I explain it to couples is it's like planting and growing a garden. At the start of a relationship, you put all this energy into planting But if you were to then do that in your garden, go and plant everything and then just check in on the garden from time to time and say to the garden, I really love you. You mean the world to me. You're everything to me. But you never actually took the time to water it and to weed it and to keep planting. Then the garden isn't going to grow. And so the relationship is the same. All of that energy at the start is great, but you have to really keep showing up and putting in that effort in the relationship and realizing that every good relationship takes that kind of effort. No great relationship just happens. And it takes setting aside time is is often a really big one. We prioritize and we schedule so many things in our lives, but relationships often end up with the leftovers. 
It's the time at night when couples get into bed, when they've done everything else and they're exhausted. And that's the time that they give to each other instead of really putting that first. And I say this to couples with children as well. I know that you want the best for your children and taking care of them is an absolute priority, but maintaining your relationship is a necessity and a gift for your children as well. Yeah, I wrote down the word effort just before it came out of your lips. And I think there is that kind of letdown sometimes because there is that beautiful feeling. I interviewed, so my podcast that came out yesterday was with a scholar of the philosopher Martin Buber, who wrote this famous book, I and Thou. And interestingly enough, I didn't know this, he wrote about relationships. And in the context of I and Thou, maybe maybe you know this, so it sounds like you do. And it really spoke to me because he talked about what it is to bear the like non-beingness. And in neuroscience, of course, we talk about misattunement and we talk about repair and it's very much centered in the body. But he was really speaking about the depth of really facing our mortality in certain moments when you are disconnected from the person you love and how, what, we, what, what it takes to bear that without railing against life or the relationship. And you're nodding and I want to hear what you're thinking. You know, psychotherapy that I did my master's in, Martin Buber and, and his philosophy about the relationship and what's going on in the in-between and always being alive in that space, like always paying attention to like what's happening now in that space between it's the third entity and me and the relationship. So giving that attention as well is such a, an enormous part of the school of therapy that I come from. So I, I love that you've shared that. And it's the part that we don't see in Hollywood movies. And they lived happily ever after. The stuff we don't get in fairy tales. And they lived happily ever after implies that was it, that it was done. Not that there was a day-to-day facing, a continually getting to know who your partner is in mm. this moment, what their needs are, how they've changed, what the relationship needs to evolve. Yeah, I obviously, this whole thing was relationship. It was the longer term facing the continual deaths of the relationship that we have to somehow sustain. I actually refer people very often to film or to fairy tales where there often is a lot of tragedy or pathos and we don't want it in our own lives. Why is my relationship rocky? But would you go to see a Hollywood movie where all it was was a happy couple sipping tea and talking about, I don't know, the, the next couch they're going to buy? We run to books that make us cry and, and tear our hearts out. And, and fair enough. I've been on my knees many times learning about what it takes to get closer to somebody. And, and I love that you talked about effort because... I guess the way I frame it sometimes when people are like, well, if I have to reach out and hold their hand because they like to be touched, then I'm doing it against my will and that doesn't feel organic. And I guess what often crosses my mind is, isn't a relationship learning about what somebody else needs and who they are and then going against sometimes our own instincts <laughs> and what feels natural for us to do that? And I guess that's why all the conversation, I can't put it into words, to be honest, when people talk about authenticity, something goes like, I get it, but we're not. And, and Buber said that too. He's like, you can't force it. You can't force authenticity. You can't create the thou relationship. It's intention. We put our intention in that place. And I think before we go, it's important maybe to touch a bit on trauma, on the layers, the, the body carrying 
fear and, and vigilance and having been hurt. Because again, that ties in for me to what we're talking about when often, this is something I wrote about this week, relationships where there is a history of trauma often begin with such euphoria because there's this feeling of feeling complete. And I'll see it, I don't know if you've seen this, but couples come in where perhaps there's a trauma history and the first couple of sessions are like, you think the heavens opened up and they're crying and they finally feel close. And I'm always a bit nervous because I'm like, oh no, like they're going to come in two weeks from now and they're going to be in the basement because they're going to lose this euphoria. And I get scared, to be honest, as a therapist, because I'm like, how do I pick you back up and normalize the swings? Because that everydayness wasn't modeled, right? Like life was chaotic. And so I know I'm asking many different questions, but to touch a little bit together on how to help someone feel safe where their body has been betrayed, but also how to navigate the huge swings of like feeling really safe, but then normalizing disappointment, which that's how I think about it, but it may be very different in your own practice and mind. The word slow and steady come up for me that we do it slowly. It's not a quick fix or an instant, okay, now we're going to be amazing forever, but normalizing that there will be ups and downs in the process, but that also those incredible highs are not the signal of love. Because I think sometimes when we have trauma or a trauma bond, or we've been in these relationships that can be so chaotic and up and down. There is such relief when we get to the times where everything is good, that it's, oh my God, this is amazing. And this is what it should be like. And they absolutely love me because there are these highs. And I think we need to normalize and educate what you said before about a couple sitting down and drinking tea together, that actually that can also be incredibly loving to just have a steadiness and a calmness in the relationship that the highs do not define a good relationship. And for me, I'm always talking to couples about it is going to take time. We need to retrain your nervous system. We need to reteach your nervous system about what it is to be in an intimate, loving, safe relationship. And it is just going to take time. But I don't know if that fits with, with what with the way that you, oh absolutely you I think I feel I feel some of the helplessness in talking about it that sometimes because I, I think you're right it's a consistent space to reiterate and make safe and model that it takes time and we have to go slow and I guess I just wanted to ask I find it hard sometimes to especially if somebody has felt alone for a long time I tend to think that sometimes what's happening in relationships, I'm not saying anything new, is that somebody is trusting for the first time in their life. And that I feel daunted sometimes, even if there's this part of me that wants to that point about sipping tea, there was a couple I saw for 10 years. And really, both of them came from a very difficult place. And a lot of screaming in the early part, and they came in about five years in, and the screaming, the yelling was gone. <laughs> and they came in and they were like, so we just come home and it's quiet. <laughs> And they were like, is that it? And I remember like my internal voice was like, do you remember when you came and you went to prison and you were there? And, and, and it was like, now you're sipping tea outside. And to be honest with you, I think that I, I used to travel a lot for work. And when COVID hit and I was home more and I was just cooking in the kitchen, I was like, oh, this is really nice. <laughs> and people often talk about that for trauma survivors and those that run really high. 
People often throw out this idea that safety may not feel good, that it doesn't feel safe. And we know some of the reasons why, that you have to put down your weapons, you have to trust the shoe is not going to drop. And I guess maybe that's some of the discomfort I'm touching in myself as we talk about it, where I think sometimes when I'm modeling that or I'm like, hey, we'll come back next week and we'll do this again, I can feel this hunger there for safety in the person. And I don't feel up to sometimes soothing that hurt part. And I don't know if you ever feel that way or if if you just say, hey, let's take it slow. And they're like, yes, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I have to come to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I do get it. I do get that. Well, that kind of drive that people often have to have it quickly and to have the changes quickly. And I think part of the way I am and part of the way that I work is that it's going to take time and I'm going to be there with you for as long as it takes because I have that patience within myself and I know that's really what's needed. And it is sometimes really challenging to hold that, but we really need to make change quickly and to hold that space of, I want you to make change as fast as you can, but I want you to make the change that's meaningful and that lasts. And so I'm going to hold you to that because that's my role. That's what I'm here for, to make the lasting change. Yeah, it's lovely. It reminds me that so much about what we do, whether it's in a therapeutic context or the context of a friendship or parents, it's about relationship and one's own. The tradition that I come from to this day is still very much about the therapy of the practitioner and their own work. And that's always tricky, right? Because it it can't veer into, there's a great book by a German analyst called Power in the Helping Professions. And it goes through all the ethics of hierarchy because it can veer into, well, oh, you come in, the therapist has done their work and, and somehow they know better. I think as you're pointing out, working with people, maybe being in your own relationship, you can bring a certain faith, a certain hope, a certain knowledge that you have some sense of what's around the corner and that can be very soothing. But the flip side, I think, is also true. I, I routinely open up like last night with a couple that has done great work lately, but came in really stuck. And I acknowledge that I also felt a bit helpless and sad with them that there was such pain in the room. And I think that's a part of it about us sitting and normalizing these moments of stuckness. Like you said, right, that we have to somehow complicate this wild goose chase towards happily ever after, because that might keep us continually feeling tired and broken. If that's the carrot, (laughs) that's always being held up. Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you. I can tell that the people that see you are really lucky to have you in their lives. And yeah, it was just so nice of you to make time to talk. I can tell that people really are touched by what you write about your willingness, as you said, to go into really into talking about physical intimacy. Maybe as a last thought, just because it's something you know that I wrote about this week, and you mentioned earlier that men can connect sex to their self-worth. I also find that if there's an absence of being able to put words to emotions, sex can distill reach for closeness. And there's that imbalance too. And we can take it out of gender, of course. I do agree that if there are heterosexual and gender typical relationships, often it's men that have less language. But I think sex is so powerful that for anybody, it can be a way. And I wonder if you see that often that can be the frustration that this is the only way that somebody reaches when they're alone. And of course, that affects 
pregnancy and times when women have to pull away with their libido naturally. And maybe as a last thought, because I think that's something people struggle with. And I've seen couples come in on their knees. Well, it is the socially sanctioned way that men can ask for intimacy. And that committed relationship is the socially sanctioned way that women can ask for sex. And so I think that acknowledgement also, we don't teach men to connect to their emotions, to their needs for intimacy in other ways. And not shutting each other down when there is an approach, even if it's not the way you would approach your partner, not rejecting that approach, but being able to not necessarily respond to it in the way your partner wants, but acknowledge it and acknowledge your care and your love for them, I I think is how that stops some of those differences becoming something that that takes couples apart and, and has so much hurt build up between them. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's a lovely way of thinking about it. And that's how I see the healing starting in in therapy when even if the partner maybe has a limited set of tools of how they connect to their desire for closeness, what I hear you saying is try and recommit yourself to be open-minded about the intentionality and what's behind a person reaching. It's a lot more sophisticated than maybe it looks like on the surface. That's right. That's how I've seen it happen where somebody will come in and say, they just want sex. And then when we slow it down, there's so much more that's behind that reach. Exactly. That's a lovely note to end on. I know that my own marriage has gotten deeper because we both just tried to expand through couples therapy and talking and failing and expand. Yeah. Why the other person, you know, just to share this morning, as I said, I was leaving quite early and my wife was getting my son ready for school and she was overwhelmed and I couldn't find my pass and she was frustrated. And in the back of my mind, I think because we've spoken so much, I was like, she is doing so much and she has so much on her plate just because I'm working and I have important things to do. It doesn't mean that somehow she can stop what she's doing. And I texted her after and I was like, you do so much and thank you. And I'll rework my schedule next time. And she wrote back and she was like, thank you. I'm sorry I was bitchy. I need to get some more sleep. And I'll be honest, this took time to get to a rhythm where within minutes we could, I think early on, that loss of the person's grace was just so powerful. And so to all of you that are listening, it takes time. And I just want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your love. And it comes across quite readily that you love what you do. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm always so grateful to people who are willing to hold these conversations around intimacy and relationships and sex and to really engage in them in a meaningful way and to make it accessible for people because we so often don't get to hear what's important and what we need to around this. So thank you so much for having me on and engaging in a way that's been so present and and so helpful. Oh, good. Hope to see you very soon. Likewise. What a great pleasure to talk to Asaya, particularly her comments about normalizing and just having conversations so that we can all share in our collective wisdom about what it takes to stay close, to work through our fears. And like I said in the interview, people must be very lucky to meet with her because it's clear that she brings in a joy and an optimism to people's relationships that I can tell makes a huge difference. Thanks to all of you for your continued support. 
please go to mitchellsmolkin.com. You can find my workbook on intimacy there. You can connect with me. Come on to Instagram. Have a conversation with me. Let's talk. And I look forward to seeing you next time. I remain faithfully yours.